following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 12, beginning at verse 35. Jesus said to the people, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that is Christ's, glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God absolutely abides forever and ever. We ask ourselves, where is that invisible line? that division point within an individual mind and heart which divides real justifying saving faith in Jesus Christ from hardened and agnostic unbelief. Can you see it? Can you identify it? Is there a test you can administer to a child that will reveal who will be a true believer one day? And who will not? Why is it one person finds believing in Christ as Lord to appear to be almost as easy as breathing in and and breathing out again, while other people find faith a terrific intellectual and moral and emotional struggle that they certainly cannot seem to conquer in their own strength? I've always been rather haunted by a real-life story of one of Billy Graham's early friends, now no longer on this earth. The man's name is Charles Templeton. Billy Graham and Chuck Templeton were good friends in the 1940s when both were beginning to be active in the Youth for Christ movement, and both were going out, leading youth rallies, speaking to large audiences, being rather influential, making the newspapers in that particular time. Both were talented 
gifted speakers. In fact, there were many people, had they compared the two and did compare the two and said, you know, the more talented of the two of them was Chuck Templeton. Templeton was used as an evangelist. I understand he spoke in Harrisburg once, and the audience was so large for the huge youth rally, it was said by the newspaper at that time, and this is in the 1940s, to be one of the largest crowds ever gathered in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Templeton started a church, and he rented a hall that seated a 1,000 people, and some laughed at him. They said, what in the world are you doing? A thousand people, you're going to start a church? A year later, they were looking for a bigger hall. Chuck Templeton was an effective man, and people came to Christ because he preached. But interestingly, realizing that he had not had a lot of formal education, didn't even have a college degree, Templeton applied to and was accepted at Princeton Seminary. He attended, and he found an interesting thing happening, perhaps not entirely unpredicted. More and more skepticism was absorbed by him as he attended classes that told him why the Bible was not this and not that and created many doubts. And he started to talk to these, about these things to his friend Billy Graham and said, Billy, did you know that this contradicts this and this? We can't take this on faith. And he caused a struggle for Billy, thinking, well, maybe he knows things I don't know. Sadly, Templeton's many doubts sowed at seminary bore sour fruit. And by the time he was 40, he was out of the ministry. He began a second career as a journalist, an editor, a broadcaster. He lived in Toronto, Canada. I'm told that up there his name was as well known as a kind of a Walter Cronkite type figure, the man who gave authoritative editorials in various media. Up until his death at age 86, Chuck Templeton called himself an agnostic. He didn't have harsh things to say about Christianity, but he did say this in his book, Farewell to God, quote, Jesus probably was the greatest human being who ever lived and a moral genius, but he was not the divine Son of God. And Templeton said, there was a kind of wistfulness in his mind and his imagination. He actually said, I miss the Jesus I once worshipped. What a hard thing to hear from someone who actually led others to faith. He could not believe in the end the things he had once preached. Well, John twelve thirty five and following has this very brief final address of Jesus to a general audience. In the Gospel of John, this is the last time Jesus addresses, you might say, the general public. As far as we can tell, he was speaking here to a crowd in Jerusalem. And from here on, you'll, you can check it out as we go forward. All the times when he speaks, he's speaking to either a select gathering of disciples or to those who might be called believers, not really to the general public. And he gives this little address that we'll just mention for a minute. And then John gives some analysis and follow-up about it that's going to consume most of our time. But the address of Jesus here is this thrust, basically. While you have the light, the truth of God that he's presenting, believe in it 
so you might become sons of light. And then in verse 37, John follows this up and observes the many miracles Jesus had done and and observes that the people who got this message from him and any others who had heard him had been witnesses of many miracles. But regardless of that, nearly all of them did not believe in him at that time. And here is this specter. It's sort of like a ghost to come out of the closet. The unbelief of Israel. It's something that the early apostles wonder over. How is it that God appointed the nation of Israel to be his exemplar people on the earth, and yet they of all people mostly did not believe in him? John might have said, if you got him in a confidential moment, that if it was a grand goal of the ministry of Jesus to attract as many people from Israel as he possibly could to trust in him and call him the Messiah of Israel, then the ministry of Jesus was a failure because he drew only, really, a rather small number to be true believers despite great crowds who had sometimes gone after him. John is recognizing that something is true here, though. He doesn't just pose a question and then give us no hint of an answer. He's going to refer to things said to and said by the prophet Isaiah to see that God commissioned that prophet long ago to go and preach the light, preach the truth of a coming Savior, and God told Isaiah that when you go and when you preach it, most people are not going to listen. Most people are not going to believe. And John recalls that here for us this morning. Certainly, unbelief is rampant in the world of 2015. Unbelief is more aggressive than it was even a decade or two ago. Unbelief is now publishing books that speak derisively and mockingly of Christian faith in ways that most authors would not dare to use in recent past times. Certainly not people publishing with major publishing houses as we see today. And we're caused to ask questions about unbelief. Why is it the way it is? Why are some people back and forth between faith and agnosticism or atheism and they land on the side of atheism? What, what makes the difference? Is it brain chemistry? Is it merely a, an issue of opportunity, reading the right book, knowing the right friend, What is it that makes one person a believer and one a non-believer? How do we balance the human issue that's involved with God's sovereign action? There are huge questions here. You might summarize the whole question is, why don't some people believe? Well, John has some answers to offer for us, But I would remind you that it's not a mere abstract theological problem that we're solving because every single one of us here knows men and women and young people, people who are in our families, people you may be married to, people you work with, people you care about, who would be on the side of unbelief. So it's a real problem. I point you, first of all, to John 12, 37 to 39. And as a first point here, I would summarize it in this phrase. Unbelief to us 
always seems unbelievable. Isn't that true as a Christian? You think about your friends who don't believe, and to you, the, the truths of God in Christ, the truths that we call the gospel, why, these are things you know. Maybe you've known them for years and years, and you accept them so firmly. You say, how could somebody not accept this? What is wrong with people who don't accept this? John is reminding us of these mostly Israelite Jewish people who saw the miracles of Jesus, and these miracles were not small in number, and they were not unimpressive in scope and power. Demons were expelled. Wind and sea were commanded. Water was changed to wine. The dead had risen. Some of these people were, were there when just outside of Jerusalem, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And they were standing as close as I am to the the front pew here and probably rushed forward and took Lazarus by the hand and shook his hand. Wow! A dead man is alive. But it seemed to make no permanent effect as far as making people say, this is the Christ of God. This is the Lord of the universe. I will bow my life before him. No. Well, John is reminding us in our text, that the same Old Testament that promised a Messiah who would be Jesus Christ also prophesied that his own people would reject him when he did come. That was something John remembered, and he was bringing it out here now as he quotes, first of all, in verse 38 from Isaiah 53.1. The great familiar chapter of Isaiah 53 opens with a question, who has believed our report And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the answer that then is given in Isaiah 53 is basically this. Almost no one. Isaiah was reminding the fact that when the Messiah would come, he would come in suffering. He would come in ignominy. That's the great chapter about the sufferings of Christ. And the report about him would not be believed. Some of the lines there would be familiar to you, that he was despised and rejected of men, one from whom we hid our faces. Not a superstar, not a media hero, not a Donald Trump, not a a politician ready for office, not a man who could sing and dance on Broadway or anything of that kind. A man everybody would turn away from. That would be the Messiah of God. John was reminding people of that lest they look upon the unbelief of the Jewish people of Jesus' time and say, "What? How, this is incredible. How could they not believe? John was saying they were doing exactly what God predicted would happen. We tend to think of unbelief, those perhaps especially of us who may have been Christians a long time. We think, well, it seems to me like the The facts of Christianity are so well-founded. The evidences are there, the proofs of the resurrection, the miracles Jesus did that even his enemies didn't deny that he had done. There's evidence and, and reason and logic all over the place. And we say, why in the world? You know, if you go to a debate today between an atheist, uh, Take some Richard Dawkins or some famous atheistic author debating some strong Christian author. I can guarantee you that the atheistic side is going to constantly use the the, the words science, reason, logic. And the interesting thing is that there is nothing 
more unscientific, irrational, or illogical than unbelief in the true and living God. It denies all the things that it believes are the very proofs of what it stands for. What we know from the Scripture, if you know the Scripture at all, and I have no time to go back and rehearse this whole thing, of course, but all the way back in Genesis, we know that man turned away from the knowledge of God. Man chose against the reasonable, against the, what was the logical thing? God said, I'm putting you in this world. I'll bless you. It's full of things for you. Just remember this. Don't cross this line. Wouldn't it have been perfectly logical and reasonable for man to say, wonderful God, You're so good to me. I can't believe how you blessed me. Of course I'll do that thing. What did man do? Immediately. What did we do in Adam? We rejected God. And we've been doing it ever since. And we today even take lightly the fall of mankind to realize we fell into unbelief as our natural state. We don't even believe the Bible when Ephesians 2 says you are dead spiritually in your trespass. Oh, well, that's kind of exaggerated. I'm not exactly dead. I can at least reach out and take the medicine. I can at least respond to God doing the best. No. Ephesians 2 says D-E-A-D. Spiritually dead, helpless, unable to reach out and take hold of God. John here in verse 39 says, therefore, a majority could not believe because they were born in the kingdom of unbelief. And human ability all by itself can't break out of that unless the Spirit of God blasts through and breaks down the concrete wall of unbelief. Even we Christians, I think, do not take as seriously as we ought to the human hearts desperately lost condition. We think people are just a little bit unfortunate, or they're, they're not as well informed as they might be. If only they read this, oh, I read this wonderful book by Tim Keller. If I get my friend to read The Reason for God by Tim Keller, that will do it. It won't do it only by human effort. It won't do it no matter if they read 25 books, unless the Spirit of God is working to bring them to new life. People from Israel were awaiting a a Savior, a Messiah, formally speaking. As I said, they might have shaken Lazarus' hand. They tasted the sweet wine at the wedding where Jesus changed the water, but they were still locked up in unbelief. Apart from a new birth by the Spirit of God, people stay locked up. Think Think of the country of the world where you would least want to live in light of oppressive lack of of freedom and everything else. I certainly think of North Korea. Don't send me to North Korea, please. You know, you read everything about it. People are made into robots. They dare not step out of line. They dare not say the wrong word because a dictator with a police state behind him will just step on them. And you think of people of North Korea If you could think of them as in the spiritual equivalent, that's what it's like to be in unbelief. But you know what? When I think about that, it would actually be better to live in North Korea 
than to be in the biblical description of unbelief because guess what? Some people, at least a few, do escape North Korea. Unbelief does not have those kinds of escapes. There is no human ability in our might or our effort or our mindset alone. And this is why unbelief always seems unbelievable to us. But secondly, go to verses 40 and 41, and this is really the heart of this text because it raises something that troubles people if they misunderstand it. There's a statement made here that can be misunderstood, and you ought not to understand it. We ask it as a question. When does God harden a heart? Once again, John quotes Isaiah in verse 40. After having said that these people could not believe, he's now describing that and saying, He, that's God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I, God, would heal them. Well, wait a minute. This sounds like it's all God's doing. God arbitrarily condemns people to unbelief and locks them up and throws away the key and says they they can't believe even if they want to. And that's what some people take away from this, and they would blame God for unbelief. Certainly, first of all, we have to say God does have such power if he chooses to use it. He could do that. He could arbitrarily condemn people for no reason, no difference from someone else. And he could lock them up and make their belief impossible. But is that arbitrarily what he does? And the fact is, no. What we're reading here is an action of God upon those who already are condemning themselves and already are choosing unbelief to further judicially act upon them so that their already dull eyes grow duller and duller. It's illustrated well in, a, in several ways, and we could take this subject up at much more length than I'm going to, but Romans 1 is the prime indication. After mankind chooses the wrong things, tells themselves lies about the culture and so on, gives themselves over to wrong and ungodly choices. What does it say God did? After they do that, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God responded to the human choice of unbelief and said, you want unbelief? Go taste unbelief and see how wonderful it is. The same thing's actually true in the book of Exodus. I remember preaching through Exodus with you quite a few years ago and wrestling over these passages where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and then another passage says God hardened his heart and then another passage says Pharaoh hardened, God hardened. And I was asking myself, well, who hardened first? And the answer as you study it in Exodus is Pharaoh hardened his heart and the Lord gave him up to that hardening and allowed it to become worse and allowed it to become worse. That's the order, the logic in Exodus. God judicially allowing unbelief to more and more imprison a person when they exercised it. So it really means that God is is here following the refusal of the light rather than causing that refusal. Maybe this illustration doesn't work so well, but Imagine somebody driving out in a remote wilderness area and they start going by signs that say, bridge out ahead, five miles, danger, do not proceed. 
Another sign, bridge out, three miles, do not proceed. And the driver of the car is going along 60 miles an hour. Maybe he's a little bit intoxicated. He's ignoring these signs. Bridge out, stop here, don't go any further. And he drives right on by, smash into the river. Now, suppose that driver stands up and says, why, it's the fault of the Colorado Highway Department that they didn't warn me. Uh, that I had this terrible crash. No, he couldn't say that. The signs were there. He ignored them. He went on. He caused himself the crash. People say this of God. I had a smash-up in my life, and they ignore all the things that got them there, the unbelief, the rebellion, the rejection of the Word of God, the refusal of the truth, so that God's light, if it did glimmer in their lives a little bit, was pushed in more and more by clouds of darkness and obscured. Augustine, the ancient writer who was right on so many issues in 500 A.D., had a concluding statement on this second point, I think, when he said, The Lord, by his prophet Isaiah, did indeed predict the unbelief of the Jews, but that prediction was not the cause of their unbelief. The Lord does not compel any man to sin. Mass unbelief is freely undertaken by the fallen human will. Well, thirdly, this morning, I would look at verses 42 and 43 with a warning in it, a warning to us. Do not be among those who are the almost converted. The almost converted. You see, verse 42 says that in that day when John was speaking, many even among the Jewish authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, who were very powerful, they did not confess, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. What are we supposed to conclude about these people? Were they believers, actually, just in secret, or were they not really believers? Well, the interesting thing is commentators are all over the place. Some will say they were real believers, and later on we found out Others will say, no, they couldn't have been believers at all if they were put down by the fear of men. A few say what I think is correct. The text simply doesn't solve it, and it doesn't. It leaves us to wonder. We would guess, and in fact, we're right, we know, to believe that among them were some like uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who later on showed faith in Christ by taking his body and burying it. They were true believers. But there were undoubtedly others who were so conflicted here that they were attracted in a way, but they could not step out because they were afraid of men. The, the key issue is what does believed mean here? The original New Testament word used for believe here is a word that usually, most of the time, does mean real conversion, real trusting faith in Christ coming from a renewed heart and spirit where the Holy Spirit is at work, a justifying faith at work. But there are some occasions, and I could give you a list, I'm only going to give you one, where it's used in a way that really the faith is very superficial. Acts 8 will be my one example. Acts 8.13 tells us of the man Simon, the magician, here was a guy who thought Christianity was a, you know, a good adjunct to his magic act. And if he just got in and became one of these Christians and somebody did some hocus-pocus over him, 
he could do wonderful miracles like the apostles. So he, it says he believed. He believed, and he was baptized. And then immediately he proved that he was not at all a participant in true faith. And the apostles said, you have no part in this thing. So there are times when believed is used that word, and we think it's used that way here. People who had some glimmer of something, but not a full expression. They hesitated, they were fearful, and they would not openly confess Christ. And that's the vital thing. Because at God's final day, when Christ is our judge, there are going to be no secret disciples. I hear this every now and then, still today. People say they think this is somehow a truth of American life, like uh, mom and apple pie, I guess. My faith is my personal business. And that's supposed to put up the sign and say, don't probe me, preacher. This is just between me and God. Well, I want to gently but firmly say to that person, there's nothing biblical about what you've just said. Your faith in Jesus Christ is the business of the church and of other Christians to know. And if you are Christ's, you will identify with him. Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. What's put first there, belief or confession? Confess with your mouth. Jesus said, Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before man, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Not optional whether you acknowledge him or not. Real Christians don't hide their witness under a rock. Dr. Jim Boyce, in his comment, in his commentary on John, has a great line on this. He said, either your secrecy kills discipleship or your discipleship kills the secrecy. That's what it's all about. In the days of raging unbelief that we face today, when it's out in the open and the combat is at the high levels of our government and our courts and everything else, so-called secret disciples of Jesus actually prove to be worthless to themselves and to the kingdom of God. Not only will they not be recognized by Christ in the final day as his, they're ineffective right now. They're just so much extra weight in the church. We must step out, whatever that involves, whatever words it, it requires us to say to whatever persons, and say, yes, have you considered what the Bible has to say? Have you considered who Jesus Christ is? I'm sorry, but I have a contrary opinion to what you're saying, and it's founded on the Word of God. That's not always comfortable to say, is it? And so you're quiet for fear of man, just like these folks. The question is, are you driven by the praise of men or the praise of God? In summary, we need to learn today, we've looked at a very broad and, and difficult subject here, but I hope you would see that God forces no man or woman into unbelief. Adam's the one who chose it. We reproduced Adam's choice. We do it every day. Unbelief is humanity's natural state of being, incredible as that is. And we fall prey to its fatal consequences, and we live in it, and we are blinded by it unless and until the Spirit of God gives us new life and a new mind. I trust in Jesus Christ.
and calling him our Lord. A time comes for every unbeliever when gospel truth is no longer available to them to respond to. Now, we would usually say, and we'd hope to be able to say, well, that time is as long as you're alive, as long as there's breath going in and out, you can still trust Christ. But if you take what is being said here of God's corrosive judgment, blinding the eyes and hardening the heart of that one who keeps on choosing and keeps on choosing unbelief, it's as if you had a water faucet on the outside of your house in some remote area and, and it leaked just a little bit so that it just dripped a little bit every day. And, and you never used this faucet and so that little bit of dripping meant rusting and rusting and rusting. And one day, ten years later, you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to go hook the hose up to that faucet at the back end of the house. And you found that no effort of your hands or any wrench can open that faucet because it has rusted shut. That's what happens to some unbelievers as they are hardened by their refusal to God. Our call to evangelize and be salt and light in this rotting society today is exercised in the light of a word from Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.11. If you don't think this is happening Try watching the news sometime. Paul said, God sends them a strong delusion so that they actually believe what is false in order to be condemned. That is, all who do not believe the truth who take pleasure in unrighteousness. That's God's diagnosis of the corrosive effects of unbelief. I bid you today to hear the gospel appeal of Jesus who said, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may be sons and daughters of the light. Let's pray together. Father, this is a sore word to us, but unbelief is not a joke. It's not a light matter. It's not something we can flirt with and have an affair with without it having deadly effects on us. We pray for those we know. We're all burdened by people who walk in unbelief, who walk under this delusion that Paul talked about in Thessalonians. Help us, Father. Make us bold to be truth bearers and light bearers. May we cling to the light of Christ in our dark and cloudy times. Use us and be with us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.